0: Welcome to episode fifty-four, tales told out of school, about forty years of interviewing, not only for my biographies, but I'll make some reference, some I'll have some discussion of the biographies of others as well. Uh, just a bit about what do I mean? Tales told out of school. Uh, well, there is a kind of school of biography. Um, There are centers of biography like the Levy Center, for example, but I don't mean that. The school of biography I'm referring to is uh, the biographies you read, that school you, so to speak, and what a biography is. And I guess the point of this podcast is there are things you need to learn about biography that you won't find in those books, in those biographies. That there are things that biographers say to one another and experiences that biographers have, which they don't share publicly, and sometimes not even privately. I was struck by this when I was working on Richard Ellman's papers at the University of Tulsa, and he had been scheduled to write an article about writing his biographies, researching and writing his biographies, and at the last minute he backed out. He wouldn't do it. And one of the reasons he wouldn't do it is what I discovered in his papers. The kinds of things he had to do to get people to talk to him. The kind of manipulative behaviors he would have to have talked about. And Elman at this point was such a sainted figure in the history of biography. I think he had a certain persona, a certain kind of image uh, that he wanted to uphold, uh, and therefore to get into you know the nuts and bolts, uh, the backstage, the backstory, uh, I think was a very difficult prospect for him, and he backed away from it. I spent most of my career uh, dealing with that backstory in, in books like Confessions of a Serial Biographer. A higher form of cannibalism: Adventures in the Art and Politics of Biography, to name two of them. And I've never been reluctant to uh, to talk about what happens out of school. Um, here's one example. Um, this morning, when I woke up, I read the obituary for Peter Manso who wrote a number of books. Um, The one that I was most concerned with in in my career uh, was an oral biography of Norman Mailer. His oral biography of Norman Mailer is extraordinary if for no other reason than that. He got so many people to talk to him, including Mailer's mother, other members of Mailer's family, his closest friends, uh, Mailer himself, Manso, was a friend of Mailer's. They eventually had a falling out. Um, Manso was not the easiest person to get along with. When I decided to do a biography of Norman Mailer, we're going back now to 1990, after, just after I had published my biography of Martha Gellhorn, and I was an administrator, I was Dean of Education at Brook College, City University of New York. And originally, I was going to do more of a critical book about Mailer because I didn't see how, as a full-time dean, uh, I was going to have the time to travel and do the kinds of archival research you have to do for a biography. But I couldn't help myself. Uh, Literary criticism was not enough. I found myself wanting to do a biography. Uh, And I was looking around and thinking about how he was going to do it. What I decided to do, I did do archival research at the University of Michigan, for example, University of Texas as well. Uh, And I did do some interviewing for the book. But given the time constraints that I had, uh, I had another tremendous resource, Peter Manzo's Oral Biography of Norman Mailer. I started to look at his interviews and realized that you know, they were just interviews. It was a collection of interviews. These could be shaped selectively uh, as part of my biography. Uh, and of course, I scrupulously document in my Mailer biography what I take from Manso. Flash forward, the book is about to be published and galleys are being sent out. And my editor at the... at um, Paragon House, my publisher, gets a call from Peter Manso, who says, oh, that looks like an interesting biography of Mailer. I, I would like to review it. Could you send me a galley? Well, as we subsequently learned, he had no intention of, of reviewing my Mailer biography. He wanted to see, of course, what, what use I had made of his work. Well, he blew a gasket uh, because he said I had ripped him off. I had used his material. Um, What was it for, I wondered, other than to be used by another biographer uh, because it was so valuable. His argument was he had had uh, had to get releases for all the people that he had interviewed and therefore I had to get his permission. I had uh, canvassed this problem with my wife, Lisa Paddock, who is an attorney, Uh, with a special interest in copyright, and I said to Lisa, I said, look, these are not Peter Manso's words that I'm drawing on, sometimes quoting, sometimes, you know, paraphrasing, summarizing, using as facts when they are facts. I don't see why I need his permission. Um, I don't think that the copyright really is his. And actually, when you interview someone, although they can claim copyright in their own words, I'm not sure what would happen if such a case went to court. At least I didn't see it as an issue because I wasn't taking verbatim somebody's interview um, uh, and then just putting it in my book. I was, as is said now about biography, biography is a transformational work. The fact that you use somebody else's work, if you're using it in your own context, so to speak, your own shaping of the story... That's perfectly legitimate and can be regarded as fair use, which is how I have operated for the last 40 years. Well, he didn't actually threaten to sue, I don't think, but he made sort of menacing gestures in that direction. And I said to my editor at Paragon House, why don't you talk to my wife and she'll explain to you what the parameters are here, of why why I did what I did. Uh, and they had quite a conversation that went on for quite some time, and my wife convinced her, and we just went ahead and never heard from Peter Manso again. So that's just something to think about when you're using other sources, other interviews. I originally, before I read this obituary of Peter Manso this morning, was going to talk about another call I got from a biographer. I won't mention his name. Uh, It's a work in progress, Uh, He was worried, because he had interviewed someone close to the subject of his biography. uh, And uh, now that person was saying uh, she wanted to look at the material. He had at one point even said to her, uh, you know, you might want to take a look at this sometime. So he had already made the offer, which I do too. I don't think that's a mistake, actually. Some biographers don't do that. They won't show the material. Uh, but I I do, but with this proviso, so to speak, it's my book. Uh, I'm I'm certainly interested in hearing from people I've interviewed uh, as to the accuracy of it, if they have you know further points to make, or even arguments about why I mischaracterized what they said. I'll take that all into account, but in the end, it's my judgment call. It's what I'm going to do with it, and that's what I told this biographer who was calling me. I said, if you want to show it to her, show it to her. Sure. But, uh, you know, make it clear without, you know, being obnoxious about it, that, that you, you want you want this feedback, you want this response, and that you'll take it into consideration. But you don't need anyone's permission. To me, when I interview someone, they're giving me implied permission use their work. What do they think I'm going to do? Of course I'm going to publish it. Now there are some biographers like Peter Manso who get releases and it's standard practice with them. I've never done that. I've never ever asked anyone to sign a release. I've signed a lot of them for documentary film which is pretty standard practice. I don't think any documentary filmmakers would proceed if they didn't get a, a release from someone they're interviewing but that's a whole other story about documentary film so I won't get into that. I was thinking about this call that I got and the advice I was giving, had I ever had the experience myself of interviewing somebody and then them wanting, in a sense, to take it back uh, and to either um, censor, which I would consider it, or in in some other way, modify, I can only think of a couple instances, and it wasn't censorship. I I interviewed Diana Trilling um, for a biography of Lillian Hellman, because she was a friend of Hellman's. And uh, I I did say to Trilling that uh, I would show her what I wrote. I sent her a whole chapter, not just what she said, but the whole context in which she said things in, in an entire chapter from my Hellman biography. She sent it back to me. Um, she did make changes, but the changes she made uh, were the, the fact that she was reading it on a page instead of just talking to me. Uh, and so the, the, uh, the, the comments she made, weren't. she didn't take back anything that she said, but it was certainly more articulate. Uh, on the page as she did it, and she went beyond that. She she went on since I gave her the whole chapter to edit other parts of my chapter, <laughs> and she apologized. She said, "I'm sorry, uh, I couldn't help myself. I, I was I started to work on your prose." I said, "Don't worry about it. You made it better. I have no problem with that." The other one was really kind of surprise uh, when I was doing the biography of Joe Craigie, the wife of Michael Foote, And we, I had a long discussion with him because uh, I had to get into his house and see her papers. It's the only place they were uh, to do my biography of her. And he was quite enthusiastic because he was a great admirer of my Rebecca West biography. So uh, I spent three years off and on essentially living with him and going through her papers and sitting in her study where she wrote a book of uh, that she never quite com- completed, Daughters of Dissent, about votes for women in Great Britain. Well, uh, in the end, I also sent him the whole biography, since it was a biography of his wife, after all, and he played a huge part in the biography. The only part that really bothered him was my characterization of his marriage, which he got really angry about. Uh, because it didn't correspond with his idea of the marriage. Now, there had been warning signals. His stepdaughter had said, when you read Carl's biography, you know, you you may be surprised. Uh, and I even joked with the two of them in the same room, saying, I might have to write this biography in two columns. Um, at any rate, to make a long story short, he got very upset. And he did request changes, you know, he had said all along, it's your book. Well, he at one point he got angry, slammed his hand down on the table and said, this must come out. Well, I, I didn't take it out, actually. I did make a few modifications because I thought he had some good points to make. So so I did make some, but it didn't change the story fundamentally at all. And I wrote a second book, A Private Life of Michael Foote, in which I go into this whole issue, uh, what happened with him. Uh because I had spent so much time with him, there was enough material for a book about him. So that's that's what happened. Um, I've been interviewing uh, for 40 years. I began with a biography of Marilyn Monroe. And uh, one of the things you learn with interviewing is uh, to network, just like looking for a job. Uh, and there there are people... Who may only have a tangential relationship to your subject, but they're a way in. Robert Caro talks about this, about starting on the periphery, way out there before you get to the central figures in your subject's life. And you work up sort of a head of steam and a network of people uh, that you interview. And it gets you closer and closer and closer to the center of things, whether you're authorized uh, or not. Um, you can often get very very far into your subject's life that way with marilyn monroe i had done summer stock in cape may new jersey now we're going back to 1966 and uh, subsequent years i worked in a pharmacy there central pharmacy and i got to know bruce minnix who at one point was the town's mayor uh and saw him at parties uh but uh, for, for my purposes even more importantly He had been the director of Search for Tomorrow, the soap opera. And I remember at a party, I can't remember why, uh, the subject of Marilyn Monroe came up. This is before I knew I was going to do her biography. And he mentioned that he knew some people that knew her. Well, who he knew was uh, Ralph Roberts uh, and Steffi Sidney. Ralph Roberts had been Marilyn Monroe's masseur. Ralph was also an actor. And Steffi Sidney was the daughter of Sidney Skolsky, a very famous Hollywood columnist. Um, and so uh, I got in touch with Bruce, and he gave me their contact numbers. And that really got me started on Marilyn Monroe. Uh, from from um, uh, Ralph Roberts, a very thoughtful, kind, tender man, who had some really intimate things to say about Marilyn Monroe and Steffi Sidney, who, as a young woman, grew up knowing Marilyn Monroe, really gave me insights that you don't get from people who acted with Monroe or only saw her in a professional capacity. So that it gave my book, I think, a kind of intimate feel that some of the other earlier Marilyn Monroe biographies didn't have. Uh, I was just looking at the acknowledgments of the Marilyn Monroe book, and I had entirely forgotten what Steffi told me about Ben Hecht, the famous screenwriter and journalist and novelist, Ben Hecht, calling up uh, Sidney Skolsky. He was working on Marilyn Monroe's autobiography, which eventually was published as My Story. And Hecht was calling up Skolsky to say, uh, reading things to Skolsky, who was very close to Marilyn Monroe and had a part in creating her career, Hetwood was calling up Skolsky and reading parts of my story to him and saying, how does this sound? Does this sound like Marilyn? Is it capturing Marilyn? I mean, that was really a gift. And and I don't, Steffi Sidney, Skolsky's daughter, had not been interviewed by earlier uh, Marilyn Monroe biographers. So that was extraordinary. It was through Ralph that I got to meet Ellen Burstyn. Uh, and Ellen Burstyn never knew Marilyn Monroe, but Marilyn Burstyn was a member of the actor's studio and really looked upon Lee Strasberg as her savior and was very upset by biographers who looked upon Strasberg as a kind of manipulator who only took on Monroe because she was a famous figure who might do something for the actor's studio. Uh, and Burstyn didn't feel this way, and ultimately I don't feel that way about Strasbourg either. It's not, not to say that you can't be critical of Strasburg, uh as a seeker of publicity, but we live in a world of mixed motivations, and the fact that in some sense Strasbourg might have used Marilyn, uh, it works the other way too, I think. You could say that she used him in some ways, and that they were, they, they, there was a beneficial relationship there. Let me just put it that way. Burston was wonderful because she started to analyze Monroe's performances, particularly Marilyn Monroe's walk in Niagara, and how in 1953, when the film was released, this was really an unusual, you might have to go back to the pre-code days um, to to, uh, see what Marilyn Monroe was doing in Niagara, uh, the way she was openly uh, dealing with sexuality in a way that really almost frightened people. Um, It was the one time in her career that she got fan mail that was very negative. People did not want to see her as a femme fatale, which essentially she is in that movie. And 20th Century Fox never put her in such a film again. Uh, Even though the director, Henry Hathaway, had some very serious roles in mind for Marilyn Monroe, she never got that opportunity and Hathaway never got that opportunity. Much of my experience in interviewing has been very, very positive, uh, especially with my fellow biographers. Uh, Here I was a neophyte in 1980, beginning my work on Marilyn Monroe. Uh, What did I do? I wrote to Fred Lawrence Giles, who had written a very good biography of Monroe, and to Marie Zoloto, who wrote a biography while Monroe was still alive, and Monroe read that and uh she may have had her criticisms of it, but she certainly wasn't upset by it, and she remained friends with Solito. They were really uh remarkably i mean I was in my thirties then uh they saw me as this young man, an academic who was taking them seriously. neither of them were academics they were they were really journalists um they weren't meeting uh uh um, academic uh, who was interested in these sorts of things. When I published my Marilyn Monroe biography in 1986, there was no university press uh, producing such books. They might produce a book on a director because of the auteur theory, uh, but not on actors and certainly not on someone like Marilyn Monroe. That that comes much later. Uh, and uh, I was really out in the wilderness doing that book. didn't bother me, uh, Any those of you who know me. Uh, understand why it wouldn't bother me. The last person I want to mention you know, with the the Marilyn Monroe uh, biography is Rupert Allen. My God, he he uh, he knew uh, Marilyn Monroe first when he did a profile of her for Look magazine in the early '50s, and then he became her her uh, press agent. I didn't know much about Rupert when I interviewed him. If you look up Rupert Allen, he he had quite quite an interesting career. Um, wonderful man. Do you have to call him a gentleman? Uh, he, the way he described Marilyn Monroe, the seriousness with which he um, treated her, uh, had, had just in terms of tone, had an enormous impact on my biography of Marilyn Monroe. So I'm giving you the impression um, that with this exception of the Michael Foote story, Uh, My experiences interviewing have been very positive, and many of them have been, that's for sure. But even the most renowned biographers um, have had their difficulties interviewing. I reviewed a book by a very prominent biographer who uh, contacted me very appreciative of my very positive review and I said had said something in that uh review about interviewing and if you look at and I can't tell you who this is but if you if you were to look at this biographer's acknowledgments he acknowledges the 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 daughter of his subject and how helpful she was and so on but in his email to me he said she was a pain in the ass, and went on to detail what he meant. Um, that's the other thing about biographers' acknowledgments. They're almost never honest, uh, by which I mean they're just profusely grateful, uh, and you you never learn, uh, you know, can you, can you think of a, a biographer's acknowledgments which reads something like this? My thanks to the daughter of so-and-so. We certainly had our rough times and disagreements, but in the end, it worked out just fine. <laughs> really? You think you're going to find a biographer who says that? And yet, not knowing that, and not getting that kind of acknowledgement, uh, to be able to read, in other words, out of school, that kind of acknowledgement, you're not really getting at what, biography is as a process. You're not getting at, in a sense, the subtext or the backstory of why reviewers will treat a biographer in a certain way. I certainly learned this uh, when my wife and I did a biography of Susan Sontag, and we got some some very good reviews, but some very negative reviews by you know, New York establishment people uh, who were part of the Sontag circle in one way or another uh there had been by the way many publishers who wouldn't publish the Sontag biography because they say oh we know Susan we 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 just we we can't do this um we we can't publish a book that uh explains how Susan Sontag became Susan Sontag so there is in a sense what you might call this uh this dark side of biography uh that's that's very difficult to um manage It reminds me of the next biography I did uh, of Lillian Hellman. Uh, And I wanted, and I will name the person in this case, a playwright, Ruth Getz. Uh, And I had been told that she had some some interesting things to say about uh, Lillian Hellman. Uh, And one of the problems uh, in dealing with interviews is uh, you, you want all, you know, you want a range of opinion. You want a range of perceptions on your subject. But what is an uh, interviewee supposed to do when his or her memories are basically negative? Uh, And that's the way they honestly feel. And that's their view of the subject. Uh, But do they really want to be in a book just saying those negative things and perhaps being accused by others of having access to grind and animosities that they're... Taking out on this on the subject in this biography the subject, you get into all that business with biography well, uh, through another biographer I got Ruth Getz's telephone number and I called her up uh, and she was very wary she didn't want to be interviewed and I said well you're 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 an important voice can't can't you tell me anything about Lillian Hillman And in a barely audible voice, Ruth Getz said to me, she was a viper. I'm still here. I'm just going to drink my tea. The opposite of that is Walter Matthau. I wrote him a letter. Uh, Actually, I wrote it, I wrote, I looked him up in some uh, reference book and it said, write to him um, care of his attorney. And I thought, well, I wonder if he'll ever get this letter. And I did something which really amuses me now. Uh, At that point, I was teaching at Wayne State University in Detroit. We're we're talking about um, 1986 or so. And, um, I wrote Mathau a letter explaining I was doing this biography of Lillian Hillman. And I went to some pains to say, although I certainly was going to deal with all aspects of her life, I was intensely interested in her as a playwright uh, and a screenwriter. And I really wanted to speak with actors who worked with her. <clears throat> Mathau had done... Um, uh, um, had been in a play with Ruth Gordon, my mother, my father and me, it was an adaptation of a novel, Uh, was actually the last thing for the New York stage that Lillian Hellman worked on and the play was a failure, in spite of its great cast, and I rather like the adaptation, but it just didn't go at the time, it even has a character in it called (laughs) Styron, a black character uh, and named it, you know, Hellman was a good friend of William Styron's. That's a whole other issue about Styron. I'll get to in a moment. And Lillian Hellman in my biography. Uh, but, uh, Matthau, uh, I, I, in my letter to Mathau uh, I said, you know, I'm, I, I teach at Wayne State University and, uh, Here's I don't know if I gave my teaching schedule. I haven't gone back to look at the letter. It's in my archive at the University of Tulsa, as, as is my interview with him, which occurred on the phone. I actually told him <laughs> which days of the week would be the best to call me and gave him my number. <clears throat> I think at the time I thought, well, boy, this is really a long shot. Am I going to hear from Walter Matthau? <clears throat> By God, the guy called me up. And we talked for at least a half hour about all sorts of things, because he got to know Hellman, you know, she essentially became a friend. He wasn't just in one of her plays. Uh, and I remember particularly talking about her politics. She's she's often been called a Stalinist, certainly a leftist. And it was in Matha was very thoughtful, and he said, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize her. So quickly, he said, I can think of things which put her on the right side of things that is politically uh, uh, conservative side and the liberal or the radical side. He said she was a very complicated person, uh, which is what a biography wants to show. It shouldn't be simply a, a political certainly attack on the subject or present one point of view. So it was a remarkably interesting interview. Um, at the end of it, I was just so thrilled and so taken with this. I said to Matthew, I said, why did you call me? I'm really surprised that you called me. And he said, well, he said, I get these letters all the time. He said, but yours was about the most interesting one I've gotten in the last 10 years. Well, needless to say, I was thrilled then. I'm thrilled now when I think of it, uh, that a letter of mine could have that impact, Uh, So you might think about that, Uh, whether it's an email or it's an actual letter you send in the mail, what you say, how you say it, how you characterize it, what you're really trying to do, uh, as frank as you can be, might be the best approach to subjects who might otherwise not be willing uh, to talk. One other Mathau related story that relates to another interview. The, another person who was in this play with Matthau and Ruth Gordon was Haywood Halebrun, <clears throat> who I interviewed in New York City in his apartment. And at one point, uh, he said, would you turn that tape recorder off? I generally recorded all of my interviews. Uh, and he proceeded to tell me a story about how Ruth uh, Gordon and Walter Mathau hated each other's guts. Uh, and I keep th- I kept thinking, well, the tape recorder is off. Boy, as soon as I get out of this apartment, I'm going to write this whole thing down. So Brune finished with his story. And uh, he said, okay, you can turn back on the tape recorder. So he turns back on the tape. He didn't say, I don't remember him saying this was, it was off the record, but he just didn't want it recorded him saying these things. You know, it's when you're with a third party, which actually calls to mind another story about Martha Gellhorn, which maybe I'll get to in this podcast. Funny thing is, when I left the apartment and uh, went to write down what he said, other than what I've just told you about Gordon and Matha, I couldn't remember. It It, it was like when he said turn off that tape recorder, I turned off my, my uh, mind, my memory. Uh, it, it was just extraordinary. <laughs> what a failure. Uh, you can rely too much on machines, I suppose. If I had taken notes, uh, you know, that's another option, I think, is to both record and take notes, even though you think the notes might be superfluous. Uh, might be a good thing. Uh, digital recorders break down, uh, just as tape recorders used to. Um, the only downside I see to taking notes during interview is I really like to read my subjects. What I mean is I want that eye contact. I want to look at their gestures. You know I want the whole package, and constantly looking down and taking notes. Um. It's funny, on the one hand, you know, people see a tape recorder and they they that might make them uncomfortable. Uh on the other hand, uh sometimes they forget about the tape recorder and they just keep going. Uh that has been my my experience as well. Uh whereas they can never forget you're taking notes if you take notes. Hard to say. Maybe it you know, maybe it's subject by subject you should think of it. Think of it that way. Um that might be the best way um, to do it. I'm thinking about one other thing maybe related to the Hellman biography. I'm trying to go in chronological order, Hellman and then the next biography is Gellhorn. Uh, and we'll, we'll see, maybe I'll save that for part two of Tales Told Out of School. One other really interesting interview uh, and I used a lot of what he said, but again, what I'm telling you now, you're not going to get by reading the Hellman biography. It's not that what I'm telling you now should be in there, and yet, my telling you this gives you the backstory, gives you a sense of who I am as a biographer. You know, is it this, this would go into a novel, for example, where you, you, would, you would characterize the person telling the story. Uh, one of the people I interviewed was... Um, Richard Wilbur, the poet Richard Wilbur, who uh, knew Hellman quite uh, well, uh, from some, especially summers at the vineyard. Uh, they socialized a lot. Uh, John Hersey, uh, who wrote me three long letters explaining why he couldn't talk to me, because he was obligated to Hellman's authorized biographer, William Abrams. Uh, William Styron also wrote a long—not a long—wrote a, a, a postcard to me saying he really regretted he would like to talk to me, but again he had promised to talk to William Abrams and didn't. And then there was Richard Wilbur, who did talk to me. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, Styron later talked to me for my Mailer biography, and I think I am going to save that for another podcast because that's a bit of an involved story, too. Wilbur, I would say, oh, maybe 10 minutes into the interview or so, uh, said to me, You're going to really have a hard time. Uh, and I think I must have said, Well, why is that? Uh, and he said, Well, uh, He mentioned the authorized biographer. By the way, the authorized biographer, William Abrams, never wrote the book. That often happens. It's a way of scaring off other biographers. Just name an authorized biographer. He said, uh, there's William Abrams to contend with. Hillary Mills was going to write a biography, but she dropped out and actually was very helpful to me. That's another story. Um, He said, but her archive at the University of Texas is closed. Only Abrams can access it. When I heard that, I kept it to myself, but boy, that was a blow. I should have known that, but I didn't. I had a contract already with St. Martin's Press to write her biography. Didn't know I wouldn't be able to see her archive. But you know what? Um, I was able to visit the archive. and The actual Hammett papers were open to me, and there's a lot about Hellman in them and other people who knew Hellman. had had papers at the University of Texas I could look at, but even better than that, her archive had been open for two decades. There were a lot of dissertations, several of them which quoted a lot of primary source material, letters and so on, so that I was able to reconstruct a good bit of the archive. Plus, you know, when you're number two, you're, you know, the one, not the, the authorized, but the author unauthorized, you have to work harder, and I found her husband, Arthur Kober's archive at the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research. I found a lot of new stuff, including a new Hellman screenplay, new, that is undiscovered screenplay that that, uh, no one knew about that I was the first one to write about. But the important thing that I wanna say about the Richard Wilbur uh, interview, and maybe I'll stop here and continue this discussion uh, next week in Part Two of Tales Told Out of School, the thing that really was transforming—that uh, uh, gave me a kind of license, a kind of freedom—as a biographer in my thinking about biography—is he said, "You know, Lillian Hellman told me uh, not. She was dead by the time I was doing the book. If I was alive, she would have said not." He would have told, told, she would have told him not to talk to me. But he said, she told me not to talk to anyone except William Abrams. And I said, what did you say to her? And he said to her, and you know, you got to, she was a tough cookie. You know, to stand up to her wasn't easy. John Hersey couldn't stand up to her. William Styron couldn't stand up to her. But by God, Richard Wilbur could. Because what he told her to her face is... Who are you to tell me who I can talk to and not talk to? I'll talk to who I damn please. It's my life as well as your life. And that's why he talked to me, because she was an important part of his life, and he was going to be censored. He was going to be prevented from talking about it simply because she had laid down the law. Um, This happened with my Rebecca West biography. That's another story I have to tell in another podcast. So let's leave it there. Uh, we're, we're partly out of school. We're, we're not all the way out yet. So stay tuned. And thanks for listening.